0: New on CuriosityStream, grab your lab goggles. We're out to find the world's coolest, loudest, and most in-your-face experiments. Wow, <laughs> that's impressive. See how hands-on science can change our everyday lives on oddly satisfying science. Plus, from goats to guard dogs, <laughs> hear surprising stories about the creatures that brought humanity to the next level. It's animals that changed history. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com. Picture a painter. Paintings his passion. Baroque may be hundreds of years out of fashion, but what does that matter? He's old with no name, and has long given up his hope to find fame. He's ailing, arthritic, dependent on pills, had his heating turned off for not paying his bills. But true artists are willing to suffer for art, no matter the strain on his faltering heart. He won't eat, he won't rest, and he grows more obsessed, With each torturous hour, he tolls on his quest. To perfect his last painting, it may be too late. To die famous, but maybe he can still die great. But death will not wait, and the prospect of failure is frightfully real now. It fills him with hate. Just what do these art critics know, he despises. Their pompous pretensions, to hell with their prizes. He's wincing now, struggling to work through the pain, of old memories pounding away in his brain. He sent hundreds of letters, tried contests galore, when knocking on every last gallery's door. He could not have done more, yet again and again, was ignored, the mere thought makes him sick to his core. Will they end up ignoring his final piece too? He pauses, steps backwards, to get a full view, and stops dead, is it maybe some trick of the light? He's been straining his eyes now through most of the night and is desperate for sleep but can't bear to delay. He sizes his painting up every which way and is all the more certain as somehow looks off. He thinks of the critics and how they would scoff and just cast it aside. He's tried and he's tried but the truth is his talents no match for his pride and he knows he'll be nameless in death as in life. He's shaking with rage right now. He seizes a knife. And they're suddenly everywhere, filling his ears with cold laughter that rings through the mist of his tears. He's slashing and shouting, gasping and reeling. Then falling, he suddenly loses all feeling. And next thing he knows, he's unmovingly splayed on the hard wooden floor with his eyes on the ceiling. He's stunned for a moment, convinced he's just died. Then pain flashes through him, He clutches his side, and sees blood pouring out of him, frantic with fear. He beseeches whatever God's willing to hear. Just help me this once, I've not begged you for wealth, or good fortune, or even so much as good health. Just please let me finish this one humble goal. When I die, you can do what you want with my soul. He catches his breath. Did his words go too far? He hears the faint hum of a lone distant car. And as light briefly flickers, he feels a soft chill, and exhales, and it's utterly still. And his fear begins fading, his consciousness dims. Unthinking, he sets about moving his limbs, and encounters no pain as the life in him drains. A new energy suddenly pumps through his veins. He crawls through the blood and arises possessed by a singular purpose. He lets his eyes rest. On the canvas and feels almost blissfully faint. He staggers up slowly towards it to paint. In the early hours of december thirteenth, twenty sixteen, police were called to the one bedroom London flat of retired bookkeeper John W. Person, from which a sudden and violent commotion had been heard. The sixty nine year old was found dead from a stab wound to the liver and blunt trauma to the head. The death was ruled a suicide. No relatives came forward to claim his possessions, among which was a small collection of personal art. The collection which included a seemingly finished painting, on which he had been working at the time of his death, was subsequently donated to a charity shop. Now picture a party, a private soiree, at a gallery, picture fine art on display. The guests exchange pleasantries, cheek kiss and chatter, their hands reaching out for the canape platter. As staff bustle round them, refilling their glasses, there's one guest who stops at a painting he passes. It shows a strange landscape, a barren grey waste, with a sweeping stark grandeur that tickles his taste. Under billowing clouds in a scene of despair, dead straggles of shrubbery crows in the air. An old tree that stands withering, twisting in pain. He takes it all in as he sips his champagne. What inspired the painting? Perhaps some bad dream. At the heart of the scene is the ghastly red gleam of a chasm, a beckoning entrance to hell. He calls the curator, for what does this sell? He's expecting the piece to be centuries old, but discovers it's new and the painter's unsold. It's a bargain, he's told, and without hesitation, he buys it and asks for the frame to be gold. The next evening he hosts a soiree of his own. His guests all arrive in black tie and are shown through his grand gated home as his private chef cooks. He receives them amid his collection of books. Which is everything, Hemingway, Hawking, Descartes. He gives them a house tour of all his fine art, and they eagerly gather to get a good view of the painting a person, he tells them, brand new, A person, they echo, all nodding their heads, as a butler attentively tops up their reds. Their host leads him out to his terrace to dine, and they're treated to springbok and free-flowing wine, and fine chocolates and cheeses a diner's delight. It's the height of refinement and lasts through the night. It's now twelve the next day and he hasn't left bed, when a maid comes to serve him his freshly baked bread. She knocks on his door, and on hearing no answer, she enters and drops her tray, screaming, he's dead. The news is received with the utmost chagrin by his relatives, all of whom quickly fly in. Though his death looks to be of a natural cause, he seemed perfectly healthy, that gives them some pause. But no inquest is ordered, as none want to wait, to lay claim to their share of his lavish estate. They put up his home and possessions for sale, as a flood of condolences burst through the mail. They're from everywhere, even the odd former friend, has the warmest of heartfelt regards to extend. But the pleasantries end, there's a fortune to seize, and the heirs are soon paying their lawyers big fees. And the painting, you ask? It soon catches the eye of a big city businessman anxious to buy. Now picture his penthouse majestically sprawling and high with a 360 view of the sky. Picture a sunset and white marble floors. Picture him leading his wife through the doors. Of their master suite bedroom she opens her eyes and he eagerly shows her her birthday surprise. It's the painting now framed on the bed-facing wall. To his sudden confusion he sees her face fall. You don't like it? No, honey, it's perfectly fine. I'm just starving. She checks her gold watch. It's near nine. And they head out to one of the city's top places to dine where they cut past the two-hour line. The manager races to clear them a table. They order a wine with a fancy French label and splurge on her favorites, foie gras and fine steak to finish the chef even wheels out a cake. But the longer they are sat there, the more they don't know. What to say to each other. They're itching to go. The dinner's soon over and no more is said. As they're limousined back and get ready for bed. She puts on her latest designer brand gown. They lie down and he silently watches her frown. At the painting, he sighs. She's not shown him one smile. But honey, Baroque is exactly your style. And I got it for only ten grand. It's a steal. Well, it's ugly and somehow disturbingly real like there's something deep down in that awful red hole, and it's waiting to crawl out and snatch out my soul. I want it got rid of tomorrow, all right? And that's final, I'm sorry. She turns off the light. He caresses her anxiously, tells her, of course. A new fear has just gripped him. She wants a divorce. Oh, honey, you know I'm just aiming to please. And I know I've been boring. Perhaps we can squeeze... A small trip in next week, would you like Martinique? Or Belize, she kisses his cheek and agrees, and he moves into cuddle, she's not doing much, but he feels she's beginning to warm to his touch. And they're sharing a kiss now, he's awkwardly wrapping, his body round hers, then he's slopping and clapping, and grunting and gasping, she's moaning and clasping, the bed head and egging him on, her voice rasping, but finds it a chore. They're not young anymore, and in minutes he's passed out and starting to snore. It's now dawn the next day, and their daughter unlocks. The front door she's disobeyed, often before, and is fearing a shout. She'll be grounded, no doubt, if they find out how recklessly late she's been out. She prays they're asleep. She gets ready to creep, past their bedroom, but can't resist taking a peep, and she jumps, She's a whisker from striking her head on the doorframe. Her mother is upright in bed. I'll explain, she blurts out, but she gets no reply. Her mother's not moving, not batting an eye. And the bedroom feels suddenly, eerily calm as she slowly, unsurely approaches her. Mom? Her dad's on his back, lying perfectly still. And his eyes appear open. She feels a faint chill. There's no sign of a heartbeat, no intake of air. She steps closer and stammers his name. He's not there. His eyes are rolled back and as white as his face, and she screams. Her mother stares on into space. On June 23, 2017, property investor Maxwell J. Bolton was found dead in his penthouse family apartment by Toronto Police. The death was ruled to be of natural causes. His wife, Stephanie Bolton, who was found unresponsive next to the deceased, was admitted shortly after to a private mental health hospital, where she remains in an intermittently catatonic state. During periods of responsiveness, her speech is largely incoherent and involves repetitive reference to a man, or old man, whose identity she will not specify. Her condition has shown no signs of improvement. After her admission, the Boltons' estate was liquidated by their only child, a daughter. The estate included a large collection of fine art. A cool breeze passed through the alpine forest and brought the smell of pine and cooking fires. Ivan stood in line next to his mother we were going to travel by Titan to see his uncle. Through the struts of the massive boarding platform, he could see the feeding tubes and muscled shoulders of the engineered beast. Up ahead, a uniformed woman smiled and checked the tickets of everyone passing through the gate. Are you excited, Ivan? Your uncle promised to have caramel apples ready for you when we get there tomorrow, said his mother with a smile. Dancing light from a nearby fire reflected in her eyes. Ivan could hardly contain his excitement, not only for seeing his uncle, but for getting to ride first class. "'Oh, yes, Mama,' he clapped his little hands with anticipation. "'I can't believe we get to travel like this!' His mother bent down and gave him a hug. This was shaping up to be the best holiday he had ever experienced. "'Step forward, ma'am.' Ivan's mother took hold of his hand and walked him up to the uniformed woman. She smiled down at him as she checked their tickets. Well, young sir, first class for you, I see. How exciting, the woman said with a smile. You two have a wonderful, safe trip. Thank you for choosing Titan Travel. Ivan followed his mother up the stairs and onto the loading platform. The platform was alive with activity. Food vendors lined one side of the walkway and windows overlooking to the alley, and the Titan lined the other. Travelers and merchants intermingled around the common area. One man tried to sell a rifle to Ivan's mother, but she waved him off and guided Ivan to a food stall where she bought them both some kebabs and tea. Ivan enthusiastically bit into the meat and felt the juices run down his chin. His mother gave an over-exaggerated sigh and pulled a cloth from her coat pocket. "'Whatever am I going to do with you?' she asked as she wiped the grease from his chin." and pinched his nose. She got up and threw away their trash. Mama, let us go look at the Titan. Ivan requested as soon as she returned. His mother wrapped her arms around him and lifted him up. Holding him to her side, she walked over to the wall of windows, and Ivan could finally see the full scale of the Titan's size. He stared in wonder as men disconnected the large feeding tubes from the torso armor. Other men guided sniper baskets into place on the massive shoulders. One man standing on a neck platform looked up and saw Ivan's little face. He waved, and as soon as he saw Ivan's small hand wave back, he grinned and went back to consulting his clipboard. The giant creature let out a low moan that shook the windows. The workers backed away to safety as the massive flesh-bound structure stood up to its full height the colossal being, towered above the platform. Its bright blue loincloth reminded Ivan of a circus tent. Rust-pitted metal reinforced its two massive legs, and long blades were attached to its fingers. The massive hands moved in accordance with the pilot's commands. The gigantic, blonde-haired head moved, and for a brief moment, Ivan could see the hollowed-out skull that served as the cockpit. He could only see the scar tissue that formed around every attachment point on his body. His mother carried him away from the window and sat him down at a table. Let's get more food. We have a while before we leave. Sometime later, a steam whistle sounded and everyone started to line up. He was guided to the front of the line with his mother. They walked down a set of stairs, across an open walkway, and up another set of stairs. The smiling man with the clipboard greeted them and directed them to their assigned basket. They climbed up the ladder and occupied the seats directly below the head. A travel attendant climbed down a ladder and asked if they would like blankets and pillows. "'Look over there, Ivan. See that smoke on the other side of the woods? That's our village,' said Ivan's mother. Whoa!' Ivan was fully enjoying himself. Do you think papa would have liked being here mama he would have loved it dear she responded with a touch of sadness the attendant arrived with blankets pillows and hot chocolate the warm drink was rich and creamy and made ivan smile even more suddenly ivan felt the world shift as the titan began to walk forward on its massive legs it wasn't long before a gentle and consistent speed was established the titan let out a roar and Ivan clapped his hands in glee. Glancing to his left, he could see one of the snipers looking at him. Ivan waved, and the soldier waved back. When he finished sipping his drink, he set the cup down and snuggled against his mother. The gentle rocking and the warmth of his mother's jacket lulled Ivan to sleep. Gentle prodding from his mother woke Ivan up. Wake up. This nice gentleman has invited you up to the cockpit. Would you like to go see how they control this thing? Ivan rubbed the sleep from his eyes and nodded his head. He was guided up the ladder and into the head, where he was then strapped into a chair. Good evening, young sir. Would you like some hot chocolate? Ivan nodded his head vigorously. All thoughts of sleep had been chased away by the excitement of being in the cockpit. The pilot handed him a cup full of steaming hot drink and asked, So, son, have you ever been on a Titan before? Do you know much about them? Ivan shook his head in answer to both questions. No, sir. How are they made? Well, these magnificent forms of transportation are grown in a lab, at a base level. They're almost as human as either you or I am. Their DNA is taken from blood samples, and then engineered for them to grow to massive proportions, with the help of steroids, nutrition, and various other chemicals. The process takes around 20 years until they reach full height. These giants are kept sedated most of their lives. They receive mental stimulation from electrical shock therapy and chemical solutions. When they're ready to be put into service, they undergo a series of surgeries. Their bones are reinforced with metal and attachment points are anchored into their flesh. Eventually, a large section of their brain is removed and replaced with a computer, and before you know it, We have a Titan. Ivan felt uncomfortable as he tried to understand what he was being told. So, this Titan is a person? he asked. The pilot thought for a moment before answering. No, not really. He's a bioengineered creation that's used for either the military or for transportation. I suppose he could have been a person, but that wasn't his fate. He was created to be what he is now. This particular Titan is called Tom-182, if you need to think of him as a person, though. Captain, Titan up ahead. Looks like it might be Mike-35 returning, shouted one of the snipers. From his seat, Ivan could see the lumbering shape of the approaching Titan. Smoke drifted up from its left side. The closer they got, the more details he could see. One of the snipers played a spotlight over the lumbering beast and revealed extensive damage. The left arm ended in a burnt stump below the elbow, and the chest plate was blacked with scorch marks. As the light moved over the face, Ivan saw tears rolling down the titan's cheeks. Tom182 let out a long and low groan, and the wounded titan groaned in response. Can they talk to each other? asked Ivan startled by this exchange of course not my young friend they're mindless responded the pilot one of the snipers climbed into the cockpit captain we can't reach them on the radio but we were able to yell to them they were attacked by the terrorists in the mountain pass and lost a good amount of their passengers they barely escaped okay ivan let's get you back to your mother maybe after we clear the pass we will get you back up here and show you how we operate this beast Ivan nodded and made his way down the ladder and back to his mother. He could see the look of concern on her face in the travel basket's light. What's going on, Ivan? Why are the titans yelling? The other titan is wounded, Mama. He's missing an arm and he's on fire, he responded. Mama, are titans people? He asked. What? No, dear, they're just engineered beasts. But Mama... The other Titan is crying. The light turned red and his mother hurried with pulling down the basket lid and locking it in place. She told him to sit on the floor for his protection. Rifle fire echoed from the trees and one of the snipers screamed. Chaos erupted all around the Titan and Ivan lifted his head above the railing. The forest was dotted with the glow of torches and lights. Tom 182 roared as it was attacked from multiple areas the Titan began to run forward in an effort to escape the ambush. They passed the other Titan, and Ivan watched as Mike-35 collapsed to its knees, fire and smoke erupting across its torso. With a final scream, the dying Titan fell to its side and was lost from view. Ivan's mother wrapped her arms around him and held him close. The lights followed them and continued their attacks. The snipers kept firing into the trees, and on occasion, the Titan would swing its bladed hands and the sounds of screaming agony and rage would echo through the trees. Mama, why are they trying to hurt us? Why would they want to kill Titans? inquired Ivan, fear choking his voice. Long ago, there was a period of time known as the Demented Age. The scientists had no laws to follow, so they created everything you can think of. Giant lizards roamed the land and sea. Illness ran rampant, and lightning tore through the sky endlessly. Eventually, her voice was drowned out by a massive explosion. The sky flashed around them, and the titan fell to its side. The basket holding both of them detached and sent them rolling into the night. Ivan woke up with a splitting headache. He was lying just outside of the basket. His mother's arm was draped over the side. He reached for the blue sleeve and tugged while calling for her. The arm fell to the ground with a wet thud. Ivan stared, his mind not comprehending what he was seeing. He cried for his mother, but the only answer he got was the deafening roar of Tom 182. The light from multiple fires flicked through the trees, and he could see the titan fight to stand back up. Smoke rolled from his chest as he slashed his hands around him, and an attempt to fight back. Finally, a rocket exploded across his face and he flopped onto his massive back with enough force to shake the ground. The roars of new titans echoed across the woods, and I even caught a glimpse of a military titan moving into the battle. The cannon on its shoulders fired, and the impact shook the ground with even more force, knocking the boy to the ground. He desperately hugged his mother's arm and screamed with terror. The boy was found the next morning covered in ash. His arms and legs were tightly wrapped around a severed arm. A soldier reached down to check the boy's pulse and jumped back as the boy started screaming. His voice was cracked and he showed signs of dehydration. The soldier wrapped a blanket around the traumatized child and carried him to a wagon. A medic took over and started treating the boy as the reptilian mount started to pull the wagon into the mountain pass. Twenty Years Later The lab tech began to purge the gigantic tank. The massive shape became easier to see as the nutrient-rich liquid drained out. A strong and lean Titan hung suspended from straps. This is a fine specimen, said her supervisor. Indeed, its source material had good genetics. Who is the donor? Remember the battle in the mountain pass that destroyed both Mike-35 and Tom-182? In the aftermath, we found a woman wandering aimlessly with a severed arm. Blood loss and terror drove her to insanity, and she kept screaming for some guy named Ivan. So we took her, and now we have this Titan, said the supervisor, pausing to drink some coffee before continuing. We traced her DNA, and the crazy thing is... Her husband was used to make Tom 182.